Every week, Hillsdale College President Larry Arn joins Hugh Hewitt to discuss great books, great men, and great ideas. This is the Hillsdale Dialogues, presented by Hillsdale College. To find more episodes, search for Hillsdale Dialogues at SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeart, and Ricochet. Morning, Glory, America. Bonjour. Hi, Canada. Hugh Hewitt. That music means the Hillsdale Dialogue is upon us. I'm so glad that you are with us. Dr. Larry Arn is president of Hillsdale College. He is in Hillsdale, I think, this morning talking to me. Good morning, Dr. Arn. How are you? I'm good. Snowing here. Oh, I'm glad, because that's just Michigan. You guys didn't do the right thing in the election, so may you be buried in snow for the next four years until you decide to do the right thing. Um, Did you have any comments on the election, Dr. Arn, before we move into Marlboro? Uh, well, the obvious thing to say is it's a mess, uh, but it's not a complete mess. Um, that is to say, there's themes that emerge that are hopeful, and there are some things that emerge that are dangerous. And the hopeful ones have to do with the education issue and its effect on state politics in the hands of the masters, who are Ron DeSantis and Glenn Youngkin especially. But also, I went to the Republican Governors Association meeting this week, and there's a bunch of them that are really good. Kim Reynolds is really good in Iowa, and uh, you know, there's they they want to they understand they're in a fundamental fight about everything, and they want to understand it, and they are working on it, and they're getting somewhere. You know, the Iowa and Ohio legislatures are next poised to pass the Ducey Plan, where the money follows the student. You and I are going to get together for the Hillsdale annual December celebration soon to talk about charter school initiative. And I'll be announcing that a lot in the course of this show and next week, the week thereafter. So people listen in, but if the Iowa and Ohio uh, models adapt the Ducey model in, in, in Arizona, we're going to be on our way, Dr. Art. I think so. I, you know, I mean, you have to understand the state of education. Uh, more than half the employees of public education in America are not teachers. So what do they do? The answer is they administer and regulate. Uh, the number of those administrators and regulators has grown 87% since 2000. The number of teachers has grown 8.5%. And the number of students has grown 7.5%. And so that we built this massive structure, and their, their, their business is mostly just to tell teachers what to do. And they think of themselves as replacing parents in many places. And so that's a that's a complete mis you know a, a utter disagreement about the nature of human beings and how they're to live. And so school choice and the schools are not very good. I mean, uh, there's that study that came out in the second Bush years uh, that uh, if you you can compare math scores across international borders. I, I, I don't really believe in this stuff all this much, but it's what we have. And American, American kindergartners are sort of lower third of the developed world. And then every year, their, their abilities decline relative to others until by the time they're seniors, they're you know, scraping up against the third world where they hardly have schools. So that, that, there's that sad and terrible thing. But then also it's a national goal to teach every child to read by the third grade by the end of the third grade, I think. And, you know, the truth is, 
Kids read by nature. It's just the same thing as learning to talk. All you got to do is show, show that what the letters, how the letters sound, and they've already learned to talk. And no other being has ever learned to talk, right? And they just, you know, uh, my grandchildren are over here this morning under the care of my wife. A I hope. State, a blessed state <laughs> for them. And, you know, I was in here, uh, and I was mumbled to myself, Robert Walpole. <laughs> <laughs> and my granddaughter, we'll get there. We'll Charlotte get is in the other room talking about Robert Walpole. <laughs> <laughs> I got. I got to tell you something. You know, I was with a one of Washington D.C.'s senior statesmen from our team, uh, a lawyer of extraordinary ability and record, who is a major player and a, a board member in a state university system. We were talking about civics, and he said, "Look, we simply know in our university system, ninety percent do not know the three branches of government as freshmen. Ninety percent of American freshmen in a major state university do not know." the three branches of government. That is a failure. We've got to get kids out of these schools. Yeah. You know, uh, I was disappointed in myself. I, I gave a talk at the, I was on a panel at the Republican Governors Association, and I, I thought I did okay, but there's one main point that I didn't get out, and that is because they all want, you know, pro-American education. Uh, but, and you know, they're, they're, they're good, right? And they, they don't know how to formulate it. And I should have taught them, but I didn't get the floor at the right time. You don't, you don't have to fudge anything. Tell the story as it happened. Yes. We're going and to come to that because Churchill understands the American colonies, the revolution, the Constitution, and the role of slavery. Yeah, that's a, you know, and, and you know, it's a, it's a wonderful story. It's one of the greatest dramas in history of history. But it's also a human story, right? So you don't even have to put in there warts and all. It's a human story. Uh, and, and it's a glorious, wonderful story. But it's also a human story. And, and we should tell that story. And if you tell it from the point of view of its hopes, you can see that it's a unique story. It, uh, nothing like the American Revolution ever happened in the world before the American Revolution. And okay. it's... It's fun to read Churchill on it because he looks at it from England in profound sympathy, and he can see that it's a different thing. And he judges the English, you know, England screwed up the American Revolution, or we'd be Canadians today, I guess. Or we would yeah, I, you know, we almost got Canada, and then we didn't get it, according to yeah. Churchill. Let, let me go there to begin this. Um, since you mentioned Walpole, that's next week, but... Um, Nobody knows who Marlboro is anymore, and I wouldn't know unless you had told me 30 years ago I had to read the book that Churchill wrote about Marlboro. Do you think Marlboro is the, uh, the, the best book that he wrote? I do think that. Uh, I think that partly because it's, uh, well, there are two that are rivals in my mind. Three, really. There are two long ones, the First World War, the World Crisis, it's called, and the Marlboro. And there's one short one, the River War, written very early in his life, and... Those books are very vigorous, and they encapsulate the Churchill teaching. All three of them do. And so, and, and then Marlboro has going for it that Leo Strauss loved it and read it many times. And oh, so interesting. Well, we should tell know. people uh, William of Orange and Marlboro are a team, and then Anne and Marlboro are a team. 
But neither William of Orange nor Anne would succeed, and in fact, William of Orange didn't succeed without Marlborough, because he didn't give him the command that he needed until sort of late in the game. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, and that's that's what it is. And uh, the way Churchill writes that book, it is partly an act of family piety. John Churchill was his ancestor, uh, what, eight times back. Uh, but and he, he wants to explain... Churchill, when Churchill writes history, he, he writes about choices. Trends are very important and powerful. But it's amazing, you know, first of all, to become trends, something had to get disrupted. Yes. And, and then to and, and they, they never continue forever. And what interrupts them is choices. And so Churchill is interested in people who make choices beautifully and statesmen it's his main theme, right? And they're, they're the greatest choosers, according to Aristotle. So this fellow comes along, and he's he got all the gifts. He's a beautiful man. He's, uh, uh, he's cultured. He's scary smart. He's self-restrained. And he is just a demon on a, va- a battlefield. He has with, physical courage. Yeah. With inspirational kind of, leadership. An atmosphere of calmness. I mean, there are these eruptions. You know, he fought in the line in all of the big battles. And, you know, Churchill liked to use the expression, bullets plucking at his epaulets. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, you know, he was in the middle of it. But also, he was thinking. The great, you know, the, the two greatest battles. Uh, that, that, that's segment three, and we're out of time, so don't okay, go there okay, yet. Okay. When we come back, he's a lot like Washington, and we'll explain that. He doesn't get father of his country status, but boy, did he deliver England from its long war with France. When we come back, we're going to turn to William of Orange and, and that austere and severe man. But I must say, all of our Hillsdale dialogues are found at hillsdale.edu. They're also found on iTunes. And if you are enjoying, as many people are coming up to me on the road and staying... This History of the English-Speaking People series, this is terrific stuff. Well, you can go back and start at the beginning. Dr. Arn knows his Churchill, he knows his History of the English-Speaking People, and he knows his history. So go back to the beginning and start. There are 12 hours devoted to the four volumes of the History of the English-Speaking People. We're in Volume 3, Book 7, England's Advance to World Power. And we come back, we talk about William of Orange. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. The Hilltail Dialogue this week is on Volume 3 of the History of the English-Speaking People by Winston Churchill. As I said when we were going out, Dr. Arndt, lots of people have stopped to talk to me about this. They they love this. I don't know if you've gotten that at all. Oh, yeah. Yeah. People, you know, I, I don't understand you, Hugh Hewitt. How did you ever think of all this? But it seems to be popular. <laughs> and we like popular. But I want everyone to hear it all, because then I want them to go get the books. Let's go to William of Orange who is something of a tragic figure because he got the power and he had the right idea, but he couldn't win a battle. Well, I mean, he won a couple of battles, but he did not have Marlborough strategic genius or battlefield chops, did he? Yeah. And Churchill uh, loves that contrast. You know, he can't really condemn William of Orange. William of Orange saved England. Yes. Uh, William of Orange was was from the Netherlands, and they were Protestant. And the British, the English had this problem. The British had this problem of Catholic kings, and they didn't like them. And and so uh, James the uh, Second was trying to be a Catholic king, 
and there was a maneuver. Uh, it, was, it was an interesting thing. The Glorious Revolution of 1688 was a, rough, a basically bloodless revolution. And so the, the sort of high classes of Britain, including the Duke of Marlborough, well, he wasn't the Duke yet, John Churchill, include, including him, they just reached an agreement that they weren't going to defend the king. And the, and the troops basically didn't obey, and Marlborough had a lot to do with that. Uh, and so the king had no, King James, had no choice but to flee to, to France, and his, he, then he, for the rest of his life, and then his son, for all of his life, and his grandson, for all of his life, or, were wards of the fresh, French state planning to come back. They intrigue. They invade. Yeah, they did. Yeah, they did. And that was, and you know, that was... Uh, like uh, there are two big things that happen in this, in this volume, in this volume three of the four volume history of the speaking peoples, that are sort of not conclusive, and that's one of them. You know, I mean, in other words, it kind of fizzled, and and uh, and you'd think, you know, the great drama of 1688. I mean, you know, so first of all, uh, James the first gave rise to Charles the first who got his head cut off. Right. And then... The Stuarts were not a lucky bunch. Yeah, you know, and then... That's right. And Cromwell and then Charles II, who was a party boy. Yep. And uh, and And uh, uh, had a prosperous reign. I think England might like party boy kings. Uh, Charles... Yes. The third is too old to be a party boy now, but I think we he think. used to be. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and so, and then uh, James II was pious and Catholic pious, and that got him in trouble. And it is amazing how that revolution uh, uh, worked. It, it, and the key figure in it was William of Orange, was uh, an important man, uh, you know, a ruler in Sky in Holland. And he was married to James's daughter, Mary, and that's from which William and Mary the college come. John Churchill is the key guy here to bring him over, and we'll As come back to church. The troops, that's right. Yeah, the troops, we'll... he, he was, and uh, repeat this about Marlborough. When any time in his life, when Marlborough got around a bunch of troops, they obeyed him. <laughs> you know, because he's oh yeah. This is the guy who knows what to do. Do, do you think he's a li- uh, that Washington is prefigured in Marlborough? I mean, he, he has got the same kind of presence in this book as Washington does. Well, uh, they're different, of course, very, uh, because Marlborough was really great as, as a mil- military commander. And George Washington, for most of the American Revolutionary War, didn't really know how to do it. He had a... <laughs> you know, Learned in the just, saddle. There had never been, there was no American in 1776 who had ever moved a large body of troops from place to place, even in peacetime. Logistics. Logistics. When we come back, we're going to talk about Marlborough the General. Maybe we'll work a little. Washington is more in our next segment in the history of the English-speaking people. But back to Marlborough the General, because you really got to know this. You might go out. And by the history of the English-speaking people, just to learn about John Churchill, the first Churchill.
Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogue continues. Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, is my guest. We are in volume three of the history of the English-speaking people. Uh, it is book seven, England's Advance to World Power. Dr. Arn and I have been doing this for uh, six weeks prior. This is our seventh week. We have five more after this on the history of the English-speaking people, and that's just part of our series on Churchill the Writer. And I commend them all to you, because you will learn as you listen, and you will get inspired, and you'll start to read. Um, I want to go back now to Marlborough the General. And a preface this, Dr. Arn, if you will. How many removes is Winston Spencer Churchill from John Churchill, who becomes the Duke of Marlborough? Uh, Churchill's grandfather was the seventh uh, Duke of Marlborough, or sixth. I'm pretty sure it's seventh. And so that means, that, and see, Ch- Ch- uh, Churchill's father, Lord Randolph Churchill, was a younger son. Second son, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and so he didn't get anything, right? He, and also, uh, if you're going to be born the second son of a duke, you want to be born the second son of the Duke of Westminster, because they own Mayfair. Mm-hmm. Got lots of dough, and they can spread it around in the family. Not so the Marlboros, who's, you know, because of death duties, they call them in Britain. Uh, Blenheim Palace is what makes the Marlboro family a going concern because it's one of the most foremost tourist attractions in Europe, and they make a lot of money showing that wonderful. Now we, we got to pause here. When my daughter and her husband and my grandchildren were in England for a year, they went to Blenheim almost every other weekend. It's a magnificent place. And nearby is a little church where Winston Churchill reposes and rests. But it is just an amazing place, Larry Arn. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, you know, it's it, Blenheim Palace is seven or eight miles from Oxford. And so my wife and I, well, my girlfriend and I, used to go there all the time. Uh, and, you know, we courted there. And uh, like Churchill, I got the girl. <laughs> there you go. Now, what's interesting about Blenheim Palace is that now we are talking about John Churchill, the general. He receives Blenheim Palace from a grateful Queen Anne who succeeds her brother-in-law, William of Orange, and before that, her sister, Mary, uh, to become the... And, and Queen Anne turns to Marlborough and says, you do this, you, you win this war. And he goes off and he wins the war with Louis the Fourteenth, And it begins at Blenheim and it ends at... I always say it right. Is it Malpique? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I can't pronounce anything French, and you know that. But yeah, but yeah. walk us through from Blenheim to the end. What did what did John Churchill do over a decade? Never lose, never losing a battle. Yeah, yeah Churchill makes a lot of, of that. You know, you can't. Uh, I don't know if Julius Caesar ever lost a battle, but uh, Napoleon did, and General Robert E. Lee did. Everybody loses sometimes, right? Churchill didn't, and. Uh, John Churchill, the first Duke of Marlborough, he just never did. And he, he fought four major battles. Uh, the greatest of them was Blenheim. The second was Ramillies, which was very like Blenheim in the way it unfolded. Uh, the third was Malplaquet, which was awful. And the fourth was Oudenard, which was a siege of a fortress and a fighting of a, of a approaching French army in its rear. He, he, he won them both same time. So uh, Blenheim and Ramillies are the places to understand Marlborough's greatness the best. Malplaquet was uh, a brutal brawl with heavy casualties on both sides. And it came later in the war, and people were tired of the war, but also they were used to 
winning a bunch and killing a lot more of them than Britain suffered. And Marlborough himself repented of that battle, although he won it, because it cost so much. But what happened at Blenheim and what happened at Ramillies was that, you know, the way, if you imagine a big field, you know, a mile across, something like that, uh, those, both those battles are fought on big open fields. And those kind of armies like that kind of battle because they had uh, troops moving sometimes in land, lines and sometimes in squares, and they had cavalry. And the cavalry would fly about all over the place, and, and, and uh, attack. the squares were excellent defenses against cavalry, but they were vulnerable to artillery. And so you, you got your squares and your lines and your cavalry and your artillery, and you have to deploy them in the right, at the right time and in the right place. And, and then you move people around. Uh, and, you know, these, you know, they're marching, right? So maybe they have a mile or a mile and a half they have to march over, and that takes time. And so your movements of your troops, it's important to conceal them from the enemy. And Marlboro was a master of that. He just uh, yeah, And for the benefit of those who are just tuning in, this is in the early 1700s, the first decade of the 1700s, when we do not have any way to talk to anyone except by sending a messenger out on a, or being on your horse and being in the front, as, as uh, Marlborough often was. But he, he disguised his, usually it was pretend to be going up the center and, and hit him in the flank or hit him in the flank and then go through the center. It's, it's all laid out. And in Marlborough, it's beautifully laid out. But he was always on a horse and he was always exposed, as you said. Uh, yeah. Leading from the front, yeah, at Blenheim. Uh, so there's this other figure in military history in the 18th century, uh, Prince Eugen or Eugene of Austria, who's. If you go to the State House in Vienna, the biggest statue right in front is of Prince Eugene. He was a very great commander, and he and Marlborough recognized each other across the distance, both fighting on the same side against the French in this war. And they had never met. And uh, Marlborough's greatest thing was the Battle of Blenheim, after which the Queen gave him that wonderful house, uh, which keeps his family alive today. Uh, and Marlborough and the Dutch, you know, the, 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 the Dutch are both a sea power and a land power. And that means they got a lot to fear from big continental armies. And they're the great ally. And the Dutch didn't want the army to go anywhere. They, they didn't want it. They wanted it to stay home, protect us, don't let them come get us. And Marlborough wanted to strike out and, you know, surround the French and come at them from a hundred different directions. And they wouldn't let him. They stopped him in 1703. But in 1704, he spent the winter with a man named Godolphin, who was his very close friend and the, basically the treasurer of England. Uh, they prepared a descent down the Rhine and the Danube. And they were going to go to Bavaria, which is in southern Germany. The French had a big army down there. And there was a Margrave down there who was an ally. And they wanted to go down there and destroy that French army. And so what they did was they stacked up boats and provisions in, in ports all up and down the, the, the river. And the river flowed back toward the sea, to the north. And that meant if the British, if, if the Allied force were to get on those boats 
and head back, they could beat the shadowing French army back. They didn't have boats. And so that meant the French army couldn't contest them all yep. the way up the river. And, and, uh, and nobody knew where they were going. Uh, Marlborough didn't tell his own commanders until they were halfway there. And so they get down there, and he joins up with Eugene, whom he'd never met before. And they fight a couple of battles, and they're very successful. And they get the French army under Marshal Tyard uh, where they want him. And uh, it's, it's really cool. Churchill's, there are three chapters. The chapter before and the chapter describing and the chapter after the Battle of Brenham are wonderful chapters in Marlborough, his life and times. They're just worth reading on their own. And uh, the, the, the chapter before ends with Marshal Tyard concluding a letter to Louis XIV, which he then dispatched, and he said uh, he's got him where he wants him. There's, <laughs> there's nowhere for him to go. And, and, uh, and then he says, I must go, Highness. Uh, the, the English are demonstrating before they continue their retirement. (laughs) (laughs) See, that's not in the history of the English-speaking people. That's in Marlborough. I don't want people to go, honey, that's funny. Isn't it good? Yeah, and and, and of course, you know, Churchill comments that by the time the letter had gotten very far out of town, Tyard was a captive. Yes, he's in the carriage. (laughs) He's in the carriage with John Churchill, and they're going away from... It is a... It's a magnificent book. Marlborough's a magnificent book, but first read... The History of the English-Speaking People, because if you don't, you won't know where to put Marlborough in that mosaic of excellence that is his, um, his entire life as a, as a writer, Winston Churchill's entire right, life as a writer. Don't go anywhere. I'll be right back with more of Dr. R and I talking about uh, Volume 3 of The History of the English-Speaking People. Welcome back, America. In this, the last segment about Book 7 of Volume 3 of the History of the English-Speaking People with Dr. Larry of Churchill fame and Hillsdale College uh, fame, uh, I wanted to pause on Marlborough out of power, because great men fall. Not everyone gets in like Washington, so respected that when the British invade and destroy Washington, D.C., they post guards at Mount Vernon so his estate will not be molested nor his tomb. Marlborough goes out of power, quoting Churchill here from the history of the English-speaking people. Marlborough was so much pursued by the Tory party and harassed by the state prosecutions against him and his, for his alleged speculation that at the end of 1712, he left the country and lived in self-imposed exile in Holland and Germany till the end of the reign. Um, we see a little bit of that in the United States. It's never a good look, Dr. Arndt. Well, you know, Marlborough had a very great power. And the way things worked back then, or at least in this war, was that the Allies, you know, Marlborough was a savior to Britain, even more to the Allied powers, because they put these combinations together and they've got these armies and none of their armies are sufficient to beat the French. And then somebody takes command and he beats the French. Whereas William and Orange had been in command in many battles over years, and he never won. He won twice. And so, you know, the contrast is apparent to everybody. And so they want him, they, they give him a lot of money. And the, the money is said to be for the employment of spies. 
And uh, Churchill makes the point many times in the Marlboro and in, and in the English-speaking peoples that, uh, just like George Washington, by the way, Marlboro was very good at employing spies because it helps if you know where the enemy is. You betcha. And so uh, large amounts of money. And then also he was paid very large amounts of money, and he was given that magnificent house. He was very richly rewarded. But, of course, then they turn on him, and what, are they, what is the controversy in politics about? The controversy is about hearth and home versus European and global ambitions. And Britain's a very decent country, and, and that means that both of those things have a big pull, right? And the Tories were sick to death of this war. And the Whigs, who were something of a more theoretical group, you might say, uh, principles, you know, not, not hearths and traditions, but principles and ideas, right? And they, they can go anywhere. And so they, the, the Whigs are all for the war. And the Tories were, in the beginning of Marlborough's time, when he won those, most of his battles, they were united. But step by step, they um, fell out about it, and the, and the Tories wanted to curtail the war. Now, by the way, they did get power and kept it up for four more years because there wasn't any choice. And as long as they had to keep it up, however much they might hate him, they had to keep Marlborough in place. And then there's a personal thing that intervenes because Marlborough's wife, Sarah, and we met in the court of... James II, where Anne was in the court as well, to eventually to succeed her father, uh, she was very close to Queen Anne. She was her great friend, and they were very close. And Marlborough was, uh, they actually referred to the relations among Marlborough and a man and this man, Godolphin, and Sarah Churchill and Anne as the cockpit. They hung out together all the time. And, and Anne basically delegated the war to Marlborough, and Sarah was her close friend. Well, over time, they began to wear on each other. And they were both, uh, especially Sarah, was a very outspoken person. And, you know, the queen was the queen, after all. And so they fall to quarreling. And then there's a man named Harley, and he's a wonderful uh, who's he like today that we know of? Oh, he was, goodness. He's uh, a wire you know, a legislator, puller. Right? A He's a wire guy. puller. Yeah, that's right. And, and he finds a woman, Abigail, attractive, young, bright, fresh, nice person, and he gets, it, he gets her around Anne, up the back stairs, Churchill writes. And, and uh, she and Anne get friendly. And the next thing you know, Sarah's out. And the next thing after that, Marlboro is out. And, Marlboro and Godolphin. Really, what? And Godolphin, yeah. They were all cashiered right now. However, as long as the war went on and they had to go out and fight, they didn't fire Marlboro. He was in uh, bad favor, but, heck, there's a battle coming. Who do we want to go? And you want Marlboro. And so he held on for... And he, and he was still consulted even when we'll talk next week about Bonnie Prince Charles and he does it. Thanks for listening to the Hillsdale Dialogues presented by Hillsdale College. 
For more episodes, search for Hillsdale Dialogues at SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeart, or Ricochet. For more information about Hillsdale College, head to hillsdale.edu.